Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership podcast. Uh, Today it's an absolute privilege to be joined by Andy Bannister. Andy, Dr. Andy Bannister I should say. Uh, Dr. Bannister lives in Dundee, Scotland and is the director of the Solar Centre for Public Christianity, which is an organisation based in Scotland that exists to persuasively communicate the truth about who Jesus is. He's also the author of six books, is a keen hiker, a mountain climber, very masculine endeavour as we've talked about, (laughs) and a photographer. Andy, great to have you with us. Yes, it's uh, great to be on the on the podcast. Thank you for making me sound really like epic and and and, and manly. Because I always think writing books is is not really just exercising your fingers. But yeah, we have good we have good outdoor pursuits here in Scotland. So yeah, I do the manly stuff as well. And the nice thing is, Andy, you know, by laying that laying that uh, thought, throwing throwing those words out there, saying that you're. Uh, what did I say? A mountain climber, hiker, etc. People will hear your voice, and they'll now be picturing someone like Russell, Russell Crowe, or yes, because if they're not getting the video, that's it. Tell people I look like Russell. Combination of Russell Crowe and Bear Grylls combined. That that's exactly it. And listeners, don't don't Google me because that illusion will then be <laughs> will be shattered. Uh, well, Andy, I'm excited today to be talking to you specifically about the the whole subject of the environment and Christian and biblical responses to environmental concern or issues of environmental concern, um, which is an an area that, by and large, it's probably fair to say these days Christians and the church isn't the leading voice in the debate and the discussion. In fact, it's often seen as being a hindrance to the to the discussion. And I'd love to tease open some of that. Uh, as we get going but I guess maybe as a first question to kind of open up the issue from a a Christian point of view or just someone who loves the environment and reads widely how serious an issue is this and how much responsibility should individual Christians feel towards the environment oh my word Jez there's a whole series of questions banged together well let's start I suppose at where you where you what what response you know how should Christians think about this I mean what's amazing right if you look at the beginning of the of the Bible when the very first couple of you know very first chapter really you know God creates everything um and you know repeatedly after he creates the skies and the seas and the and the mountains and the land and the forests and the animals God says it's good now when he comes to humanity he says it's very good you know humanity we are the we are the crowning glory of what God has made, but it's not as if God made us after he'd failed to make the earth and gone, you oh, all that's a load of rubbish. Let's, let's get it right with human beings. So we know there is firstly, obviously the way that God feels about the environment is shown right there. Then of course you look at what is said to Adam and Eve, they're told to care, care for and steward, uh, you know, to, to steward that earth. And the idea of stewardship is there. Now, Sometimes that's been misunderstood. I think so much has gone wrong in Christian thought because we've understood stewardship to mean we can use the hell we like. Um, but you know, if I if I throw you the keys to my car and I say, you know, Jez, you can you can you can borrow my Toyota, uh, I've given you stewardship over the over my <laughs> over my little Yaris. You know, if you bring it back, you know, covered in covered in vomit and dented and scratches everywhere, and I said, <laughs> dude, what's happened? And you've gone, oh mate, you gave me stewardship. That's not enough of an answer. I think I'd want some explaining to do. And I think the same goes for for creation. That theme runs through the scriptures that God cares about this world that he's made. Jesus in John 3, 16, very famous verse, God so loved the the world. And of course, comes through to the end of the Bible, you know, the whole vision for for the Christian hope for the future is not that we will be, you know, sucked out of this world and this world will be destroyed, but the new heavens and a new earth. And somehow this creation is going to be restored and redeemed too. Once God has dealt finally once and for all with all that's gone wrong with it. That's what the cross was, was about. It was something much, you know, involved us in our sinfulness, but also all the damage that the sin has wrought to us in creation. So creation is a massive biblical thing. Um, but as you said in the intro, I think where things have gone wrong 
Christians, although historically we were involved in the, environment, in, in the environmental movement, we got it into our heads that actually this was a kind of progressive, non-Christian, secular issue, and slowly the environmental movement and Christianity parted, actually I think to the detriment of, of both. And now I think there are two things going on. Firstly, of course, we have a lot of environmental concerns and, and issues right now. Yeah, there's climate change, that's talked about, but there's lots of other things. Plastic in the oceans is one of the big ones that you know I get really worked up about because that's really obvious you know climate change unless you are a scientist we don't know everything that's going on there you only have to walk the beaches and you see you know you live on the coast plastic everywhere um that's the so there's those issues but then also it's a huge issue for young people um you know i remember a couple of years ago just for lockdown doing a big event in in london for for christian young people we had about 1500 people there aged from I think 15 through to about mid 20s was the age range we had open q a they could submit questions using this you know online app and i think over the day that we were there at westminster central hall we had about five or six hundred questions um come in i would say the environment was probably the second biggest issue on that list um and so i think it is hugely important christian young people i think want to think about want to think this one through and i know many non-christians who because they think the church doesn't care about the planet are not willing to take the take Christian faith seriously. So I think it's time that we re-engage the conversation. Sorry, it was a very long answer to three to several brilliant questions tied together. <laughs> you mentioned the plastics in the ocean. I came across on your website uh, a quote by David Hartnett, who said that at current rates of disposal, by the time his one-year-old grandson, Caleb, turns 21, there will be a larger total mass of plastic in the world's oceans than fish. Yes, yeah, it's um, it's 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 unbelievable when you look at those those those, those kind of stats. And as I say, where this is one of the things that sort of slowly woke me up to environmental issues. So as someone who walks a lot, and I love I love the mountains, but I just love the beaches. As you know, you walk the beaches of Scotland. You even go to some of the furthest flung, you know, bits of the Hebrides or the Orkneys or wherever to go, where you know there's not a lot of you know outwardly human sort of development. Walk along the beaches, plastic all over the place. Um, so it doesn't you don't you don't need to really be a scientist to go we have a little bit of a of a problem here and um and i think once you just constantly remind yourself that this is god's good world you know one of my favorite hymns not so well known over here but there's that wonderful american hymn written by maltby, maltby davenbork babcock great name they gave americans in the late 1900s this is my father's world this is my father's world it's amazing if you've never come across it listening to this google the lyrics it's a beautiful hymn and once I think as Christians, we, you know, as we go around this, this world, constantly reminding ourselves, this is my father's world. Some things I think follow from that. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe just coming back to what you touched on at the start of your answer, the Christian response is that um, I think in a presentation I heard from you, you quote Neil Ansell, who's a non-Christian writer, but he describes a, what he calls a biblical outlook that sees the world solely as a resource for our benefit. And I think you then quote um, the mega church pastor, Mark Driscoll, <laughs> who says that the world's going to burn one day. That's why I drive an SUV. Oh, which, com- you know, so can you speak into that? Why why does someone like Driscoll make a comment like that? Why does someone like Ansel think that it's a biblical outlook to see the world solely as a resource? Yeah. Well, I, well, I quote those two because they're interesting, right? Because in one sense, you've got Neil Ansel, you know, as secular journalist. And, you know, in his mind, you know, it's Christians are just people who see the world there as something they can they can use for their own benefit. And, you know, when I, when I first read that, I actually read that before I came across Mark's beautiful little soundbite and he's not alone I remember reading Neil's book thinking 
yeah, well, that's a bit unfair. Where does that come from? Then I thought, well, let's go do some digging. And you don't have to dig hard before you can find that. And I and I use, you know, Mark in one sense is like, it's a bit like shooting fish in a barrel, finding him having said something a little bit unhelpful. Um, <laughs> but I think it sums up a much bigger, a bigger ethos. And um, that, that's that, that's there, this idea that, yeah, the world is simply there for our, for our benefit. And I think, I think a number of problems, of course, flow from that. And I think the first problem is we, we touched on earlier. I think it's a massively, you know, twisted understanding of stewardship. Um, you know, that, that responsibility that God places to human beings. Stewardship has built into it the idea of care. Yeah, you can use resources. God, I absolutely believe the Bible is very clear that God has placed all kinds of things into the natural world for our, you know, for human beings to use and, and enjoy everything from the, the structure of the, the world itself with the, with the seasons and agriculture and everything else and all the other things that are there. Um, but to do it in a way that destroys what you're using is, I think, deeply, deeply un-Christian, uh, quite frankly, um, is the first thing. And then, as I say, I think secondly, um, is, of course, you know, the way that Neil then responds to that is he says, as somebody who is primarily wired to be an evangelist, you know, my concern is that this thing becomes a stumbling block for people. And it breaks my heart when I come across, and not just young people, I come across anybody really who cares about the environment and has therefore got it into their head that the Christian faith has nothing to say. And actually, I do a lot of talking on university campuses. And one of my favourite talks I do these days, uh, Jez, is this one. I love doing this, this very topic. In fact, I was on the campus at St Andrews University uh, two weeks ago for a mission week there. And this was one of the topics I spoke on. And it was quite fun, actually, because what I like to do is flip the script and sort of say, look, yeah, absolutely, Christians got some things wrong. But the for my non-Christian friends, what I want them to hear is actually without the Christian faith, actually, there is no basis for environmentalism, which is the irony, um, because actually the ultimate outworking of atheism would be, well, the reason we need to look after the planet, really the best reason we have is because it's useful to us. And you can see that in the environmental movement. A lot of environmental campaigns are based on that. You know, we need to, we would be careful that we need to be, um, you know, wary about climate change because that can cause sea level rise, which, you know, affects human cities. Well, hang on a moment. Is there, is there not a better argument for caring for the environment you know, in its own right, not just because it's useful to us. So it's actually not just Christian to make this argument, to which I then say when I'm doing this evangelistically to say the only argument I know that actually works when it comes to environmentalism is that this planet is God's good gift to us. And just as you would treat with respect and care, you know, a present given to you by a loved one, by a you know, parent or a spouse or a friend, you wouldn't just then, you know, wreck it and destroy it. You'd be something seriously messed up with you. Uh, in the same way that if this world is God's good gift to us, that is a very powerful motivation for environmentalism. Mm, that's very helpful. I want to um, carry on talking about the secular responses to the environment in a sec, but I just want to backtrack a bit because something that, that strikes me, um, Driscoll's comment, is is that rooted in a uh, an, es an eschatology that sees that the world is going to just blow up and burn in the end? And so therefore, you know, to use your illustration of the car, that only works if you're coming back for the car. But if you said, have this car, run it into the ground. Um, <laughs> and, and actually, for a lot of Christians, they think God said, have the earth, run it into the ground, and we'll sort something out after all that. So can you speak into the, um, the eschatological issues here? Oh, there's a good, there's a good word for a, uh, for a Tuesday morning, eschatology. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think you're right. I think Christian misunderstandings of the environment are based in two well, actually three things we're going to get really sort of uh really sort of clever but we'll just chase down this one in a minute you've got a faulty view of creation um i think you've got a faulty view of soteriology what the work of christ 
did. And then I think you've got faulty eschatology. So it's, we've got faulty theology all across the map and, and Driscoll represents all of those. But the eschatology, absolutely right. And to go, actually, I remember what's funny is I remember as a young Christian, somehow picking up the idea that the role of the, the thing about Christianity was you, you know, you gave your life to Christ, then you got your little golden ticket to heaven, a bit like, you know, the, the, the golden ticket in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. And, and then you go to heaven to be with Jesus when you die. And I can actually remember as a teenager, my big Christ, first crisis of faith was the question, okay, what the heck happens now? I'm 14 and I'm following Jesus. You know, I might live until I'm like really old, like 50. Actually, now I'm 50. I think 80 is really old, but back then, you know. Um, and I literally remember thinking, well, surely the best thing that could happen is like I get run over by the number 13 bus to, to, to Putney or something because then I go straight to be with Jesus. That, there's actually no point being here. And that's actually the logical outworking of that theology. Um, and the thing that I think shows that Driscoll's theology is wrong all over the map is to go, if you grab Jesus or Paul and the first Christian said, okay, well, presumably I can abuse my body because I'm going to get a resurrection one anyway, right? To go when I'm raised with Christ, I'm going to have a new body so I can do whatever I like with this one. Well, Paul goes for that theology, left, right and centre. He attacks that directly. Um, I think Jesus would want nothing to do with that either because that's actually not Christianity. That's actually an ancient Greek philosophy called Gnosticism. And in Gnosticism, the idea is that the material world is bad and it's the spiritual world, the world of the mind and the spirit that's good. And so matter is a disastrous thing. And that, the, that, that worldview, as you probably know, did huge damage in church history, actually it even played into some Christological heresies in the first few centuries when there were some Christians who thought that Jesus couldn't really have become in the flesh because the flesh is bad. Right. Um, and so Driscoll is actually echoing. That idea, if you've considered that actually our job is to escape this world into a world purely of spirit, then actually that's what you're basically saying. You're saying matter is somehow secondary. The New Testament, on the other hand, has this wonderful earthy spirituality. I mean, it begins, well, it's all over the Gospels because Jesus was both God and man. He wasn't floating around pretending to be a human being. The resurrection accounts are fantastically earthy. You know, Jesus, the people touch him and feel him. He eats breakfast. He like he's he's a physical quality to him. First Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about what the resurrection body will be like in the new heavens and the new earth. It's it'll be it's going to be physical. We'll have a, a physical quality to those bodies. And here's the interesting thing, Jez. There is a continuity between our physical bodies now and our resurrected bodies. So that like, the resurrected Jesus still had the wounds the marks of the resurrection the disciples could still see the nail marks there was there was a continuity there now expand that from just us to creation because the bible does say less in the new testament about about the new heavens and the new earth and it says about our resurrected bodies but it does use a, the new heavens and new earth language and you read revelation 21 which is a beautiful picture of what the new the new heavens and the new earth will be like in fact with the you know new jerusalem coming down to, to earth and you know us living this life with you know god walking and talking with us again as it as it was in the beginning again you have this kind of very physical quality to it so i think there's a very earthy quality to new testament spirituality that we we miss if we're not careful because i think one of the mistakes we all make as christians all of us not just mark driscoll so we're not careful we have our little theological framework that we were raised in you know in my case i was raised in particular church tradition got this idea in my head and you read the new testament particularly through that lens rather than reading what the text says and the book by the way that changed my kind of thinking on this that was just uh, probably if you're like me and you read kind of widely do you have that experience when there are books that come along and you go that book was just transformative and um, one of the books that really helped me on this was um tom wright or nt wright he writes in both names depending on how academic he feels at the time his book surprised by hope is a wonderful read because it just really really 
does a deep dive into what is the New Testament saying? What is the Christian hope? And yes, it's resurrection from the dead, but it's a physical resurrection and it's a new heavens and it's a new earth. It's all these, all of creation remade through the work of Jesus on the cross, because God's project is to get everything that is evil out of his good creation. And I think Mark, bless him, has just missed that and the great thing is mark god loves mark driscoll let's not just beat up on him he's a brother in christ and um, i'm looking forward to the idea i love the idea that he'll get quite a lovely surprise actually in the new heavens the new earth when jesus may have a little word about mark it's so much more <laughs> that's very helpful thank you um so there is a kind of a necessary reframing or re repositioning of the christian out of a tradition that would say Christianity is just about you getting your sins forgiven to go to heaven and much more about understanding your position within creation as being an ambassador of yes. God and that actually it, God isn't going to just burn this whole thing up um, and say never mind let's start again but, the, the, but as with our physical bodies they're like the seeds of the next body aren't they and so that this creation in that sense is like the seed of the next creation that we should therefore care for and look after because of that is, is that a prime motivation for you as well yeah i think very much so and i think i love the way you framed it uh there jez as well is, is that as you think that through the implications are massive just as i discovered you know in as a teenager that actually you know it's not just about wanting to escape and be with jesus once you become a follower of jesus it changes everything and in fact, one of my, you know, one of my other spiritual heroes, I know probably loved by many listening to this, this podcast, C.S. Lewis, um, you know, probably if I was, you know, stuck on a desert island and was only allowed to take one C.S. Lewis quote with me, it's that very famous one where he says, I believe in Christianity in the same way as I believe the sun has risen, not because I see it, but by it, I see everything else. And what he's getting at is when you become a Christian, become a follower of Jesus, uh, everything changes. You know, the gospel sheds light on everything you know mathematics history art literature science and our view of you know creation and the environment everything is changed by the by the light of the gospel and you know that turns christianity into just this sort of little ticket i get to go to heaven when i die it's not unexciting um but it's so much more than, than, than eternal life it's it's not less than eternal life let's be absolutely clear what we're saying it's not less than that but it's massively more than that and i think what that, the other thing I, I struggled with as a as a young Christian, actually thinking back, you know, tie, there was a whole basket of things connected in um, with those early kind of struggles of faith. The other one I remember wrestling with when I was younger was the whole question of, you know, will we get bored in heaven? And if you, you know, if you think heaven is just like a church service in the sky forever, um, I know that terrifies people, terrified me. You know, I, I meet people, I meet Christians, actually talk to them who actually admit, I'm not sure I actually want to go. It, 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 you know, <laughs> I love church on a Sunday, but for eternity um but you read the new testament vision it's so much bigger new heavens new earth walking and talking with jesus again uh, to go and because he is eternal and infinite and we're not we can never we will never be able to out outgrow him and i think the, the more you look into this and press into this and read what the new testament really says it's just incredibly exciting christian faith becomes so much bigger and so much richer and so much more dramatic which is what we should expect because this is the god of the universe we're talking about so it's it's fantastic it got me excited to be a christian again when i was about 17 18 oh, that's good. i think there is a uh, like the, the gnostic problem where we think spiritual equals this invisible floatiness uh, rather than the con where actually christianity is much more holistic embedded thing where you know th this yes. is essentially 
you know, project 1.0 of God's created plan. I think when it comes to the new creation, that's 2.0. We're actually everything that we've learned yes. about stewarding and creation and God's activity, his creativity, we then implement to a greater extent in the new creation. So, but I think you're right. Absolutely. And let me just add something very quickly on that, Jez. I actually think as well, this is a tangent we may not have time to go down, rabbit trail we may not have time to go down today, but I think Gnosticism has always been one of the number one enemies, if you could have more than one number, it's, it's one of the top five enemies that Christianity has always battled. It's there in the beginning, and it's there today. And the two and the place it turns up today, we've obviously talked about the temptation Christians have you know, to reject creation. That's, a, I think, a, you know, a subversion of the gospel. But you look at the one of the other big issues you know, in our culture right now, the whole, say, transgender movement, that is Gnosticism. That says, you know, if my if in my mind I think I'm a, you know, a female, but my body is male, we don't stop and think, well, maybe we need to work on the mind and bring the mind into line with the body. No, we hack the body to pieces because the mind wins. That's Gnosticism. That's the ancient Greek story all over again. Or, another example is pops up uh, in Islam. Um, you know, you mentioned my, my academic area is, is, is Islam, my last book, Muslims and Christians worship the same God. As I wrote the chapter on there in heaven, you know, the, the Quranic view of what heaven is like is exactly that. Earth burns. As a Muslim, you want to escape there to go to the party in the sky. And it literally is what wine, women and song in, in, the, in, in heaven uh, forever um, in that kind of sort of spiritual realm upstairs. And they're going, well, that's a Quranic view. That's not a biblical view. And so, you know, Islam is the world's second biggest religion. Muslims are more and more a people group we need to think about reaching. And as I say, you know, transgenderism, huge issue that Christians have to engage with. Both of them are deeply Gnostic uh, ideas. So this, this Gnostic thing that we're talking about, you and I today, for those who are listening, it's not some, you know, mildly academic discussion. This is a, a key idea. And the Christian faith cuts right against it. You know, Christianity and Judaism before it never, never embraced the idea that what, what matters is, is the spirit and the world of matter is bad. That is not Christian. It is not biblical. It is a heresy. We need to name it for such. That's great. Thank you for that. Now, let's just stay with that as well. Because I think as well as our eschatology might be or our, our, our heretical views of the body and creation might be informing us how much as well do you think this is linked to our detachment from creation post-industrialization we might say to use another big word post-industrialization where we feel so much more disconnected from the created world i get my food from the shops rather than from the ground um and i you mentioned in, in your presentation again i found this very challenging you said if you can name more cars than you can trees you've probably got a problem <laughs> and i confess i <laughs> i think i can only name a handful I use of that trees example deliberately because i'm terrible at trees <laughs> I can name mountains. I go for when I walk in the woods. I'm like, well, I think that's an oaks. I can do. I can just about do oaks. And but when but here in Scotland, what we've got like, you know, it seems like we've got a million varieties of fir tree. Is that larch? Is that a Scots pine? And yeah, I think a couple of things are going on. The other story I I tell sometimes when I when I when I preach and 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 teach on this is a lovely illustration that I actually got from um, the the British nature writer Robert McFarlane, who tells the story that I think it was 2007. Um, when the latest, when the new edition, of, well, then the new edition of the Oxford Children's Dictionary came out, um, lots of reviewers noticed that lots of words had been culled. Words like otter, fern, willow, uh, various other things. Lots of words to do with nature had all gone. And in their place had come words like email, attachment, um, you know, celebrity, and on and on it went. 
And um, there's a <laughs> there's an interview he he cites with the head of Oxford uh, Children's Dictionaries at Oxford University Press, who basically said, "Oh well, we wanted the dictionary to re reflect the experience of modern childhood." And Robert McFarlane writes, he says, "Hasn't something gone profoundly wrong if we're raising a generation of kids who know what an email is but can't, you know, don't know what an acorn is?" Um, and so I think something has happened. Um, and then I think, of course, one of the knock-on effects, as I think as we get disconnected from the from the natural world, um, is that then we lose the connection to the God who made it. Because the Bible brings those two things together. I mean, I love, you know, Psalm 19, you know, beautiful example of that. The heavens declare the, the glory of God. That is one of my favorite psalms, you know, talking about literally the way that creation is is uh is uh, is is singing and praising praising God. And I'm you know, I'm a big, I'm a big Tolkien kind of fan and every not most years i read through lord of the rings in fact this year i'm gonna get to it twice because my my son turned seven this year and i promised him we'll read it together and i'm just finishing it myself if anyone who knows lord of the rings of course i love that tolkien who was profoundly christian took a lot of those nature themes and baked them right in so if you know your lord of the rings in the two towers of course you have uh, you have the ents uh, you have Treebeard and the ents so he literally took those in tolkien talking about that took that imagery of the trees of the field clapping their hands and sort of played with what would happen if that was real <laughs> and that, that nature actually is, you know, got something to say. Um, and so I think, yeah, we miss out on that. And I think for reasons you say, we live in a very industrial age where we can just go to the store and get whatever, whatever we want. Um, I suppose they turn on the heating, but actually if Putin has his way, that, not, that might not be the case. But, you know, other than that. Um, and then, of course, the other thing we do, which I find fascinating, is that one thing I've noticed, Jez, I don't know if you've noticed this too, that there's a lot more talk about the environment today but we talk about it in quite a detached way. I mean, you know, if I meet people, you know, I meet students banging on about the environment and I'll just say, oh, so when did you last go for a walk in the hills? Well, I've never been for a walk in the hills. Oh, okay, well, it's great that you care about the environment. That is actually, you know, brilliant, but why not get out and enjoy it? Um, because the number of studies that have been cited showing that you know, the benefits to mental health and whatnot, if you get out into the natural world, and then for Christians, I don't know about you, I know you were sort of chatting before we recorded and you said you'd like you run and stuff because you're down there on the south coast. I, I find that when I'm out walking in nature, I find it much easier to, to, to you know, to think about the, you know, the, the things of, of God to pray. I find praying outside much easier than sitting in the four walls because there's that point of connection. You know, it's much easier to, you know, to recite Psalm 19 outside on a starry night than it is sitting inside where you can't see the heavens declaring. Glory of God. So yeah, I think a whole number of reasons we've we've become we've become detached, and yeah, technology is also part of it. I guess actually, we become addicted to the little black mirrors of our phones and our and our tablets, and forgotten that actually, you know, why worry about you know 4K HD when you can just walk outside, mm. and, you know, look, look at the view and go. Actually, that's much better better than 4K, quite frankly. So yeah, there's a whole series of things that we've become we've become detached, and I think yeah, I think um, there's a. There's another uh, favourite C.S. Lewis quote of mine that I often think of when I'm outside, and that is that the, what, I can't remember the exact quote, but the, the trees aren't glorious in themselves, but they give me an idea of what glory is. And that's, oh, yeah. you, you get, you learn a lot more about God and glory and majesty and holiness by looking at the grandeur of his creation. So actually the church becomes slightly more malnourished if it just lives in apartment blocks or stares at computer screens, rather than, like you said, getting out, learning to pray in creation. Just on that as well, do you think that there's part of a, the challenge that we refer to it as nature more than creation? I know it's only a word, but oh, yes. does that change our relationship with it? I think it might, but it's funny you say that. Because you are, I, d I definitely agree with you, and we have to watch it ourselves as 
as Christians, because if you're not careful, the word nature implies that it's sort of something it, it, it's in and of itself, rather than a creator require a creation requires a creator. But what I find fascinating is the number of nature writers I read who are not Christians, who are not they're not dyed wool atheists, but they're just sort of neutral, I suppose, agnostic, whatever. They 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 sort of glide into spelling nature with a capital N. Um, and what I one of the things I've noticed over the years was I began doing a lot more nature writing was that spirituality pops up everywhere. Um, you know, Sir Robert McFarlane, who I mentioned earlier, you know, I think one of the UK countries, one of the UK's greatest nature writers living right now. Amazing. His books uh, on the natural world, the beauty of his prose is something else. But he'll occasionally almost stumble into worship without realising he's he's doing it. Uh, or here in Scotland, one of the most famous Scottish nature writers was a lady called Nan Shepherd, wrote a book uh, um, Upon That Mountain, a book on the Cairngorms. She does end up in Eastern spirituality. Now, it's easy to look at her and go, oh, you, she goes a Buddhist. Um, yeah, yeah, if Nan were alive today, I'd love to have that conversation with her. But it's the fact she can't remain secular. Nature starts getting spelt with a capital N because I think, you know, we see that connection there. And you mentioned Lewis, Lewis is interesting, um, well, for a number of reasons, because I, mean, I find him fascinating because he was an atheist for the first 30 years of his life and becomes a Christian through this experience of joy and wonder that he finds not just in the natural world, but in the literature he loves. But one of my other favourite bits of Lewis is um, he wrote this, um, he wrote a little uh, essay called A Meditation in a Tool Shed. And he, and it's fresh in my mind because I've just written my next book and I, and I borrow Lewis's shed. Um, and Lewis talks about this experience of standing in a shed uh, in the garden on a, on a sunny day but all the, there's no windows in the shed and the door's shut so they're in the dark and he said you notice though there's a crack at the top of the door and coming through the crack at the top of the door is a sun is a beam of light shaft of light coming down through in the darkness of the shed and Lewis says you can do a number of things that with that beam of light uh, you can sort of look at it and go oh it's, it's very pretty very nice beam of light if I was an artist I might you know, draw it or a poem poet I might write about it or he said you can sort of uh, turn yourself and align your eye so you look up the beam and then you'll see through the crack in the door, you'll see the trees waving outside. And then 93 million miles away, you see the sun in the sky, the source of the light. And Lewis says the same thing applies to beauty, beauty in nature, beauty in arts, that we can look at the beauty. We can look at the view at the mountain view and the river, either the seascape, the sunrise and go, oh, isn't it beautiful? And we can stop there or we can look up the beam and go, where is, where do the, all these things point? And then he adds, I think, you know, it's not, the beauty and the wonder and the joy are not in the view and the, and the beauty and the, and the natural world itself, but those are the channels through which it comes. What we need to do is look along it to the source. And I found that a really interesting conversation starter, actually, that people love the outdoors. You know, you're standing on a mountaintop, admiring the view with someone you just met on the summit to sort of raise that question of going, hey, you know, have you ever wondered why is it we are drawn to natural beauty like this? What brings us here? What causes a a man or a woman to drag their backside up a mountain and <laughs> expend sweat and blood and tears or you know or to run 5ks to look at the view of the ocean or whatever what what is it there's something there and part of our job as christians i think is to point up the sunbeam and say maybe this is pointing somewhere yeah wow that's so good i love that i love that quote and actually there's something about learning to read creation and isn't it and and see it as a tool for prayer i think there's books recently like um 
the book uh, the liturgy of the ordinary and uh and andrew wilson's written a book the the god of all things um that actually learning to see the cr- things in the creative world as tools to teach us about god um is something that we can recover as well well let's come on to just talk about some of the the secular responses so far and where you think that they might be lacking um and where where you think actually christianity and the gospel has got something better to offer Brilliant. Okay. Yes, exactly. So I was talking earlier, I think about how, you know, I'll often speak around this theme when I'm doing, you know, evangelism events or on university campuses and the the crux of, well, there are two cruxes. One of the crux is that I pivot that talk on is say, well, you know, we all agree, particularly when talking to younger audiences, we all agree there are environmental challenges, you know, plastic in the oceans, you know, deforestation, climate change, the list goes on and on and on. What's interesting though, is then you ask the question, okay, why should I care? you know why should i give a flying monkeys about the environment that's what my friends put it um now that's interesting um in fact actually one of my one of my friends is a he's a fellow evangelist a guy called michael Otz, and i know you've been listening to part of the gaps a bit so he's also a co-presenter on that podcast that we do um you know tells a lovely story of he was traveling once through europe about three years ago somewhere in hungary going somewhere got chatting to a student who was in the same compartment on the train and they were going to be over six or seven hours on this train where it was going and he just, uh, you know, found out he was a student, asked what he was studying. This guy was studying environmental science. And so Michael just said, oh, why are you studying that? And the guy said, well, I think it's really important given the uh, you know, environmental challenges the world faces. And Michael said, well, what kind of challenges? And this guy said, and listed a few. And then Michael just said, well, but why should we care? And it's interesting. He said, look on the guy's face. as a total picture that anybody could even ask. And, uh, and he thought about it. He said, well, well, because, well, because we should. And Michael went, yeah, I agree we should, but why should we? And he said, didn't take many why questions Well, the guy ran into a roadblock. Um, and I think the secular environmental movement is the same. When you start asking the why questions, um, you know, there are a number of things that have been tried. I mean, one thing that is, one thing is tried, I think we mentioned it briefly early. One, one answer that secular environmental movements, uh, the movement has often made is to say, well, it will benefit us. Um, you know, we don't want to, we don't want sea level rise, it will flood human cities and so on. And well, the problem there, of course, is that that's profoundly selfish. And B, presumably bits of nature that don't benefit us are fair game, quite frankly. You know, any species or insect that has no instrumental value to human beings, well, basically we can, you know, it's toast. So that doesn't seem to work. Um, Emotion is another thing that's tried. Um, So sometimes you'll find guilt is deployed. So Greta Thunberg is is probably the queen of this approach. She is very, very good at trying to make everyone feel guilty. And... um, and so forth so that you can take that approach or you could take the positive approach and you can appeal to compassion think of the number of environmental campaigns that are often fronted by cute animals you know chugging on the heartstrings you know, sammy the seal you know is going to or you know or, or sort of you know or sort of patrick the polar bear they, notice the the ugly animals never get the gig you never get like you know sort of frogs or you know on those posters it's always that i think it's the kittens and the seals and the and the and the, and the, and the polar bear cubs that have got that campaign so but again it's filled to emotion and the problem there i say to people is of course emotion is a terrible basis for anything because what if you don't feel the emotion what if you know greta rants at you and you go i don't care doesn't 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 work for me mate um you can't go any further um and i think that's a huge problem other uh, campaigns have tried the appeal to future generations i think again greta's used this one and greenpeace use this one you know we should you know care for the planet because you know what about future generations and that works to an extent but what do you say to somebody who says well actually i don't plan to have kids you know we have friends who 
plan not to have kids. In fact, if you look at birth rates in the UK, the birth rate is dropping precipitously. I think partly because people look at the world around and go, well, he'd want to have children. And of course, then what do you say to somebody who says, well, quite frankly, I don't worry about future generations. I don't, I'm not planning to make any. Um, and, and again, you run, and then my favorite one I've seen of late in terms of, you know, I think 10 out of 10 for effort, but minus several hundred for effectiveness. I did see a campaign a couple of years ago that was based on, we should care for the natural world because we we have a lot in common with it. So, you know, we share 98% of our, oh, that was it, it was, it was a campaign to, to help save the great apes. We share 98% of our DNA or something like that with the great apes and therefore we should care. Sounds lovely until you realize that, you know, we have carbon atoms in common with tables and we share 60% of our DNA with bananas. Um, and I don't think I have a moral imperative or duty to bananas or to tables. Um, and behind all of those campaigns, I think, show that the secular environmental movement has lost its way because when it began, environmentalism was profoundly Christian movement. We were chatting before the recording began, I think, Jez, and saying, you know, one of my one of my favorite books on this in the last 10 years or so, Mark Knoll, I think it was out of the U US, wrote a book called um, Inherit the Holy Mountain, where he traces the fact, the history of the American environmental movement, and all the founding fathers and mothers of that movement were either Christian or deeply Christian influence. So John Muir, you know, who, who basically founded the National Park Movement, and that then influenced the National Park Movement over here. He was a Presbyterian, Scottish Presbyterian, who emigrated with his family to the States, and uh, deeply influenced by that stream of Christianity, lost his way a little bit in the middle of his life, became a bit sort of into things like transcendentalism and sort of new agey ideas, but then at the end very much swings back to Orthodox Christianity. But Christianity was in his very bones, and when you hear him preach about the environment and why the, the government needs to protect the national what is now the national parks, it sounded like someone thundering from pulpit. Or Rachel Carson, whose book Silent Spring uh, arguably kick-started the modern environmental movement, again, raised in a Christian family, went to a Christian college. And again, although she perhaps wandered from her, from her faith and her roots, uh, you know, in adult life, all of the foundations were there. And then actually the same is true over here. No one's written that book for the UK, but the National Trust. Uh, you know, many of the early trustees were Christians. In fact, there was, a, there, was a, there was an Anglican minister, wasn't there? Canon Rawnsley was one of the founders of the National Trust. And I think what happened, of course, those first Christian men and women who did all that work believe that was the outworking of their Christian faith. When, when in the environmental movement and Christianity then drifted apart, I think both lost out. We've talked earlier about how Christianity has lost out because we've, we've, we've been tempted to flirt with Gnosticism and very strange you know, theologies that are not Christian, but then the environmental movement has lost out because it's lost that ability to connect to people's hearts and say the reason that we care about these issues is this is my father's world. And in fact, one of my one of my great friends is a is a is a men, is a Mennonite Christian in the in the states called Nathan Rittenhouse. And Nathan and I have spoken together on these topics, you know, in the states when I lived in Canada. And I love the tradition, the Mennonite tradition he comes from, because it's very connected the environment because a lot of them are in farming and agriculture I mean him telling me a story I mentioned right at the top of the podcast Jez that that hymn that's not so well known over here this is my father's world and the first the first line of which this is my father's world and to my listening ears all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres this is my father's world the birds their carols raise the morning light the lily white declare their makers praise this is my father's world I rested me the thought of rocks and trees and skies and seas his, his hand the wonders wrought and the other two verses are equally good. That hymn been hugely influential, by the way. The tune for it was used by Howard Shaw in the soundtrack for Lord of the Rings. So if you go and watch Lord of the Rings movie, 
the hot the the hobbit theme from that is actually that hymn reworked but anyway nathan tells me the story of his grandfather he remembers as a kid growing up as they were going for walks in the countryside if his grandfather saw a bit of litter by the side of the road his grandfather would just say you know quietly but audibly this is my father's world bend down pick it up carry on and you know put those two things together the sense is my father's world and put you know christianity and environmentalism back together and amazing things can happen and so to you know christians listening to this which is probably the majority of the audience i say we need christians not to run away from environmentalism we need to run into it we we can't let our secular friends take our toys and walk off with them take our ball and walk off the pitch with it um and to go what an amazing opportunity and i think there's an environment there's an evangelism opportunity here as well as a creation care opportunity you know if christians were known as people who cared for the environment and we're known actually as people who care for the poor i think we have that reputation but we should also be known as people who care for god's good earth and are not shy about how we do it don't just you know for folks listening to this don't just get involved in you know local branch of you know whatever um you know local footpath association or something and you know don't say why you do it tell your christian tell your non-christian friends when you go out and you know do those kind of things why you do it um but you know bring your theology and the environment back together again sorry that was a very right. very long answer to a brilliant question that was that was superb and you're absolutely right there's just getting involved again but from a position and posture of worship and gratitude for all the all god's gifts to us um, rather than falling into the trap of you know, so often just repeating the arguments of the world, um, it's very hard to watch any you know nature documentary without feeling guilty. I sit there feeling very guilty, enjoying my you know gas central heating, while David Attenborough tells me about how terrible I am, and I think oh it, it just it crushes it, it it produces feelings of inertia and inadequacy in in the scale of the problem. Whereas actually for the Christian to approach this from a posture of worship yes. and gratitude for all that god's given us actually worship and joy is the fuel of the christian life it's the fuel that keeps yes. us going long but long beyond all the moral arguments absolutely and by the way i mean i'm glad you mentioned the whole the, the, the whole the whole sort of fear and peace as well is going again this is a rabbit trail we won't go down but it is worth flagging up that we live in a culture that's fueled by fear you know it's fear about climate change fear about covid now it's fear about russia and putin and everything and going, Christians have got to be people who do not give in. Um, you know, the number of times the New Testament, you know, tells us not to fear. Do not fear. Be people of hope. Um, First Peter, one of my favourite, you know, little books in the New Testament, is full of that of that theme. And I think, yeah, we need to be people who are real and realistic. You know, we don't we don't stick our heads in the sand and go, what environmental problems? But we go, we don't need to fear. We don't need to fear because you say, based upon worship and uh, and what Christ has done for us, we can be people of confidence and people of hope. But also people mm. of action as well. Mm, that's really helpful. Actually, just a friend of mine I was listening to him yesterday. He was saying that um, when when Christians use the language of fear, they're falling into the trap of the way the secular world speaks. Actually, when it comes to when it came to COVID, our rationale in the responses that churches took was never fear. It was always love for our neighbour. But if it becomes fear, then you're then you've lost then you've lost actually because we're supposed to be fearless. The same with creation. If we're involved with creation care because we're afraid of the future, then actually we've lost we've we've lost something. It's supposed to be joy and delight in what God's given us. I'd love to I'd love to get your comment if you may on um on some of the more, what what gets labelled as some of the, the more progressive aspects of um, creation care, and why perhaps some conservative pastors might not instantly jump at it because it feels like a, a secular progressive agenda rather than a Christian one. Um, but 
but I'd like to get your comments on veganism if I can. <laughs> um, is that is? is I, can, I can hear the phone lines lighting up. Or uh... is is veganism vegetarianism? Is it here we go? Demonic influence and deceiving <laughs> spirits, or is it responsible Christianity? Oh my goodness! Or could it be neither? Actually, is interesting. Okay. Um, <laughs> one way of cutting the Gordian knot. I'm always suspicious when people give me two alternatives. I go, is it this? this? And I like to be the contrary. I like to go, maybe it's yeah. neither. Um, yes. Yeah. To go. Yeah. You know, it's like the. I'm just conscious, of course, for, for many people, this is a very emotive issue. You know, it's like the old joke, isn't it? How do you how do you know if someone's a vegan? Well, they'll tell you. And, um, <laughs> yeah, I, whenever I speak on this topic, I'll invariably get this if we do Q&A. So I'm going to raise their hand and sort of try and fly a flag for, for veganism. Um, let's start with the other way you phrase it. You know, is it a kind of demonic, kind of problematic ideology? I, I, you know, I, I love the New, the New Testament's got such practical wisdom, right? Because Paul, back, Paul talks about this in both, I think, Corinthians and Romans, actually, from memory, where, you know, whatever you eat, eat into the Lord. So if you're, you know, if you're somebody who feels that you want to be you know, uh, you know, issue, uh, you know, step away from meat, uh, or whatever. That's fine, but you know, don't turn that into an idol in its own right, and don't go around beating up fellow Christians um, who think differently to you. Conversely, if you are a you know red-blooded omnivore like myself, you know, you're, you're not you are not going to get sausages out and steak out of my until my cold dead hands. Um, to go, it's equally not right for me to go around you know beating up on people who have taken different food choices. I think that. The, on this issue particularly it's hugely important we take those words in testament seriously that we you know we we are brothers and sisters in, in christ is what unites us not our, our eating preferences and so forth but anyway let's press a bit harder into the issue though you will hear people say that christians should you know consider perhaps more strongly veganism and vegetarianism because it's more ethical it's better for the planet or all those things like all these things being a little bit contrarian i always think it's good to ask the, the why question why is it because take vegetarian and veganism to go one of the problems with that if you're not careful is if you would so easily assume that well i just make that lifestyle choice cut the meat out and then i can eat what i want actually there are some huge implications to the planet in those lifestyles um you know my wife and i you know, my family and i we have some friends of ours who, who are vegans they, they they sort of consume quite a lot of avocado and i remember sort of gently pointing out you do know that the, the, the carbon footprint on that particular fruit um, or vegetable, I'm never quite sure which it is, whichever it is. Um, and then I remember Googling somewhere, you know, looking at, because I knew there was a stat involved here. The amount of water that goes into producing an avocado is huge amounts. In fact, it's one of the most water thirsty crops you can possibly imagine. Um, and so actually that's got a horrific implication or palm oil is the other one. You know, a number of sorts of, um, you know, vegan products and vegetarian products that if you Google the list of instruction, uh, ingredients will have palm oil or soya, Almonds actually are bad as well. And you look at the way those are grown. You know, my sister-in-law lived in California uh, for some years. And you look at what monoculture production of almonds has done to the Californian, you know, water table. It's horrendous. So it's not as straightforward as that. And then the other side of the equation, I mentioned my Mennonite friend earlier. You know, he comes from a family of, you know, sort of a, a, a beef farming uh, farmers. And, he, and, you know, Nathan, if he were here, would say, you know, absolutely. If you go clear cutting on the Amazon to grow beef, horrendous on the other hand the part of america he grow he lives in the, in the hill country nothing will grow you grass is the only thing they've got and in which case you know raising a cow on that landscape is actually the most environmentally friendly thing you can do it's actually a good use of the resources and i think put those two things together jez and my conclusion that i draw from that is we should be responsible consumers 
whatever we consume. We should think about our food choices. If you're a meat eater, you know, yeah, think about animal welfare. Don't buy the cheapest, nastiest meat you can from Tesco's, even though the chickens have been battery farmed and horrendous food, environmental, animal rights, uh, animal justice issues. Uh, on the other hand, don't simply sit there thinking you're a vegan and you've got a free pass and you can, you know, chow down whatever you like and not worry about, you know, the landscape implications or, you know, we're all about, we're more aware of now fair trade issues, the way that, you know, farmers are paid in the, uh, in the global south and so on. So I think the challenge with that answer, of course, it means we will have to do work. And I think we like simplistic answers in the churches anywhere else. We like to think, well, okay, if I just eat this, I'll be all right. But I wonder if the Christian answer is actually, no, we need to do justice and, and love mercy, walk humbly with our God. And what does that look like when we apply that to what's on our plate? Um, and that would equally have a knock-on effect for things like overconsumption, right, you know, in the West, where the amount of calories we consume um, compared to the rest of the world. Um, can we think responsibly about our choices? Mm, yeah, you, you mentioned uh, elsewhere about the amount of energy per person. Um, oh, gee, yes. I, stats I, I, to hand? I, forget yeah. the, I forget the figure now. Someone's worked out, I think, you know, if you if you sort of imagine energy consumption as, as weight, I think the average Westerner, you know, consumes, you know, hundred to a hundred times what somebody in in the in the global south would consume and there's nothing inherently wrong with that necessarily um you know you can't i don't believe in feeling guilty for where you live but you can raise some questions um about you know arguably one of the you know the plastic in the ocean piece has been caused by our disposable culture um here in the west that we all easily throw things away um you know my wife's my wife's uncle is there i mean he's in his late 70s possibly even 80s now and i love going and visiting them because he repairs anything so like their toaster went wrong and he went i refuse to give in to this consumer culture so he you know he's an engineer by training so you know he'd taken his toaster apart and was carefully repairing it because he, he said <laughs> well you know and it and they're, they're committed christians and i think if don were here he'd say that's that's the christian view of stewardship of going I'm not going to throw this thing out, even though it was engineered to last three years and I buy another one. I'm actually going to repair it and reuse it, reuse, recycle this, this kind of idea. And it comes all of the all of these threads take us back to where we were with C.S. Lewis, right? The gospel sheds light on everything and it should shed light on our consumption, which is interesting. And in fact, um, I mentioned in some writing I've done on this topic. So I know you've noodled around my stuff on this for, you know, one book that was uh, very influential to me uh, was um, J. Matthew Sleeth's book, Serve God, Save the Planet. Uh, second edition, I think that book is out now. And Matthew's book is interesting because he was, or he may be retired now, but he was a, he was a doctor in the States. So, you know, earning quite a high salary and his family lives in a quite huge home. And as he began pressing into these issues, felt increasingly convicted to downsize and he and his family you know, lived it out. They lived. They they put their they put their money where their mouth was, and they downsized their house, and uh, and tried to live a much simpler life. And it's interesting, right? There was a time when simplicity was one of the classic Christian virtues, right? Um, you know, if you um, the author's name escaped me, will come back to me. But but spiritual discipline, no spiritual disciplines. I was thinking of that classic book on spiritual disciplines by ah, it's gone completely. Um, it will come back to me. I'm, I'm getting brain fog. Anyway, the classical spiritual disciplines, you know, prayer, meditation on scripture, you know, solitude, um, those kind of things that Christians for millennia practiced. Simplicity was one of them. But when was the last time you heard a sermon on simplicity? Um, it's an interesting question because our age is our age is sold as this idea that we need to consume. 
um, and lots of things flow from that. And it's challenging. And by the way, don't hear me sitting here going, well, I figured it all out. We're living this way. We got it sorted. Listen to me. I would say I'm struggling with these things as much as those listening to the show. But I think we we start by asking. We've got to be people who ask the questions, haven't we? Mm, that's very helpful. Thank you. So maybe following that thread slightly, what would be some of your advice to church leaders? Should we be preaching on this regularly? You know, you mentioned spiritual disciplines. Do preachers need to make sure they're getting people like yourself in to speak on the environment? Do they need to be making sure they're speaking on it regularly? Um, how do churches not appear to be burying their head in the sand and how do they equally avoid the, yes. some of the, the self-righteous smugness that oh, might come yeah. from other parts oh, yes. of the creation well, care? Yes, avoid the self-righteous <laughs> smugness, whatever you do, because that's that's the other thing that I think infects the environmental movement. I, I remember being a very early adopter and driving a Toyota Prius and I used to joke to friends that it runs on smugness because, you know, <laughs> drive a Prius down the road and rabbits would wave at you as you went by. Um, <laughs> kind of thing. So I think, I think the first thing I'd say is... I think church leaders should be preaching on as part of the regular preaching of the church, preach on the issues of the, of the day. Um, you know, I was, I was struck by on, on Sunday, the church that we attend here in, in Dundee, we're very careful. This is not a criticism because we love our church, but I was struck by the fact that, you know, we've got the Ukraine, Ukraine crisis kicking off lots of people terrified about what's going on in, in the world. And we just carried on the sermon series through, some eclectic bit of the old testament i remember sitting there thinking i just wonder if we the church at times needs to be willing to go this is the big issue whether it's ukraine or whether it's the environment or whether it's you know faith and science whether it's suffering covid right raise those questions because i think we need to be showing people both christians and those in our churches who are who are you know on the outside who've come because they're thinking about christian faith but not committed to christ how do we show them that the christian faith has something to say to these issues and you know that that's there all over the new testament jesus did that uh paul did that the church through history has you know always done that i think in the modern world we perhaps have slightly forgot how to do that i can remember as a young christian you know a book that was a huge influence on me john stott's issues facing christians today you know classic book um really helpful so i think for pastors listening just yeah preach around the issues so don't just preach on the environment but what are the issues and if you're not sure great opportunity to ask your congregation in fact sometimes one, one great way of finding this out the way i found these issues out to be honest i mentioned this at the start Jez, is, is doing q a and so you know i think it's a great opportunity for churches to go do regular q a nights where you can say to the church you know members come bring your friends any question any question of any kind no matter how hostile whatever it is welcome and you start doing that as a church you will find what it is that people are thinking around and then you can, you know, you can use that to inform, okay, when I'm preaching and teaching, be thinking about this. First thing. Secondly, preach the whole of the scriptures. All of us, every, I've noticed that every denomination, we have our favorite passages and, and, and books, right? So right now, I'm, I've, I'm a denominational gypsy. Whenever we've moved, we've just found a church where the gospel's preached and, and gone. So I've been Baptist, you know, Anglican, um, Brethren, uh, FIE, so you name it. Right now we're in a Presbyterian church because it was where we knew the most people in Dundee. And, you know, so for the Presbyterians, probably the Book of Romans is our favourite book, you know, regularly big sermon series through that. Other churches, you know, it's other things. Interesting as a pastor to ask yourself, where are the places I tend to lean in scripture? How can I, to quote Borum, who I quote Borum, who I quoted you earlier, how can I sample infinity in my preaching? Because if you preach the whole of scripture and you work through it regularly, Maybe you'll find those themes that you wouldn't you wouldn't normally come across. 
and I say so creation is all over the all over the is all over the scriptures. But sometimes, if we're too selective, we might might miss it. So listen to the issues, preach the whole, preach the whole of the scriptures, and then I think the way that we avoid sounding, uh, you know, sort of smug or shrill. I had a shrill for or against because you would be smug against. I've heard part, you know, I've heard sermons. Well, I think of Mark Driscoll, where we just take pops at our friends outside the church. Ah, you know, look at them banging on about these issues show how all issues connect to christ because i think every issue does connect to christ and um the way i do it on the environmental issue by the way and if you you know you've listened to some of my stuff so you'll see how i how i how i do this is um there's a there's a wonderful uh quote um by an environmentalist in the in the states uh i came across um some years ago <laughs> do you know i've got that mind blank thing i remember the quote but i forget the writer it'll come back to me who talks about the fact that um he's an environmental activist was a, the advisor to the obama uh, presidency on environmental issues and uh, he famously says that uh, you know as a when he began in climate science he said yeah, yeah i see he said i used to think that the greatest environmental challenges facing the world were you know climate change deforestation species loss i thought that 30 years of really good science could solve those issues. Um, he said, I now realize that I'm wrong, actually, and the greatest environmental challenges are greed, selfishness, and apathy. And to solve those, we need a spiritual and a, uh, I mean, a sp we need a spiritual transformation. And we scientists don't have the first clue how to do that. And um, when, I, when, I when I came across that, and the guy who said that is not a, is not a, is not a Christian, I'm coming across that thinking to myself, well, that's interesting. And that's the turn to the gospel. The environmental issue that the chief environmental challenges are heart issues that when when we when we discover that relationship with christ and that process of us becoming new creations begins in us that should then work out in how we treat one another and in how we, we treat the world that god has made so on all those issues jez i would say what you want to be doing is then you know connecting them into the cross that's how we keep humble because if we keep the cross in our focus it doesn't let us become arrogant the gospel doesn't let us do that it's the great leveler because i read you know the, the gospel tells me the cross tells me that you know i'm greedy i'm selfish i'm apathetic thankfully god still loved me enough to die for me in the person of jesus but it also knows it means i know that as i follow him and as i you know pray and allow the holy spirit to do his work in me those are the issues i want to see god work on and then i need to be asking myself as a disciple of christ how do i you know challenge those things when I see them wrecking havoc in society. So yeah, keep keep it creep it Jesus focused as you preach through the issues. Preach through the issues to the cross. Mm, that's so helpful. Thank you. I'm really, really appreciate that. As I was, as you're speaking, I'm thinking of members of my church who've started um startups, small businesses or social social campaigns to encourage people to be more much more conscientious with their consumption habits and the products that they're using and i think to encourage members of our congregation who are doing that but as you said to make sure we're always keeping it linked to the cross and perhaps you know to go back to earlier comments making sure that this may this remains an issue of worship and joy as well that we are delighting in god's creation and we're behaving as um good I don't know, ambassadors of God in the world uh, and the way that we live and consume responsibly. Uh, I think that's a really helpful answer and really fascinating comment. Yeah, you're right about how church leaders, we can often be very keen on our on our plans that we've made and we don't often let the, the, the current issues infect our plans. We think, oh no, we're just going to talk about this. People don't need to know about a Christian response to conflict. They just need to know about justification by faith from Romans. And there's a real helpful pushback and challenge there to make sure we are, because, because of course the 
the, the opposite is true as well, that it's not as though Christians are hearing a silence on the issues, you know, fear yeah. and the media and David Attenborough and Greta Thunberg, they are preaching to the saints all the time as well. And you mentioned the issues of culture like trans. Um, they, people are hearing a steady stream of ideology and what they need to hear is how it connects to the gospel. So I think it is a massive responsibility on church leaders to yeah. not duck these issues. I think so. And I think that was one of the reasons we, myself and a couple of mates, started the Bottle of the Gaps podcast was that sense that there are those gaps and I love the way you put it there yeah that you know the world is speaking on these issues and particularly you know I've had such a heart for young people and students a lot of my my, my ministry is engaging those audience other audiences too but those audiences and so it just breaks my heart when you know you hear you know I hear you know I've, I've come across Christian students who walked away from their faith you know other other non-Christians who've totally you know thrown the gospel out off as a possibility because they think Christianity has nothing to say on those issues and also I know because I, you know, because I teach and train on this stuff, I can absolutely guarantee, you know, for those who are pastors listening to this, that sitting in your church on a Sunday are people who are sitting there thinking about, you know, Monday morning, I have to go into the workplace. And the issues my colleagues are throwing at me is not how do I understand the, the, the meaning of that Greek word in Romans 13. Um, that is not unimportant. <laughs> Don't give me a saying that is not unimportant. But again, we have to show how, how it applies. And that, of course, if we look back through church history, is where the church really took off. I, you know, the first few centuries, when even under heavy persecution, the church grew like wildfire because the first Christians took the message of Jesus, they took it seriously, but then they lived it out. And people saw the difference that it made. It saw how, you know, Christians were some of the sharpest minds engaging with the issues of their day. And people were like, wow, you know, I want to give this Jesus guy a look. Um, and I think so we've got a great legacy here, men and women of you know, of Christian faith down through the centuries. Um, we've got great people today, by the way. Don't hear me as saying, oh, today we're all a load of, you know, because I don't believe in beating up the job, beating up on the church, but we do have some work to do. Uh, and I think it's, a, it's an exciting, it's an exciting opportunity because when you do that, um, you know, I see the difference that it makes. I have many sort of friends in different, from different backgrounds who've come to faith in Christ and the beginning of their story was, you know, the light bulb going on as it were and seeing that actually Christianity had something to say here um and so i think yeah hugely hugely important so yeah let's not abandon <laughs> preaching the scriptures but let's also weave the two together one of my big heroes in all of this by the way another i've mentioned several uh, a great example of how you can do this today of course and a name known to many of us i think tim keller i think one of the reasons why tim was so has been so effective you look at the, the story of how you know god grew redeemer presbyterian is that was his model of going okay how do i preach the scriptures he's good presbyterian stock those guys know their bible um but then how do you also bring the issues in? I remember reading an interview with him where he said before they planted Redeemer Presbyterian, he spent a year just walking the streets of Manhattan, drinking in the cafes, talking to anyone he would met, listening. What were the issues? What were people concerned about? What were the questions people had? And then when he, they launched and planted the church, you know, those were the things that we made sure that we talked about regularly and show that the gospel and, the, and, and Jesus have something to say to those issues. And the result was it took off like wildfire. Mm, wow that's so helpful Andy I'm so grateful for everything you said today um, you've mentioned several things uh, and books and things that you've read which we'll put in the, the the description to today's episode so people can find out more about them you mentioned your podcast as well uh, Pod of the Gaps why don't you tell us a bit more about um, where people can connect with you further if they yeah, want to yeah thanks Jez so the, the best place to connect with me so I'm, I'm sure you know Jez will put a link in the in the show notes so if you go to the Solas S-O-L-A-S is the, is the ministry I run based in Scotland S-O-L-A cpc.org that's our uh, that's our website and there you'll find a number of 
things with a huge range of resources there, thousands of videos and articles, all free, by the way. So feel free to use it, borrow it, re, you know, repurpose it, don't have to ask our permission. And one of the things we do a lot on Solas is we draw a lot of other uh, you know, speakers and writers and things in uh, to contribute. We don't just believe in doing things ourselves. So we believe God has gifted the church with this wonderful range of men and women. So you'll find interviews with people of all kinds of different backgrounds on various topics and so on. So basically, whatever topic you're interested in, just put it into the search box. So you type environment into the search box at Solas, you'll find all kinds of bits and pieces. But yeah, do check it out. And in particular, one resource there I'd really really put actually two resources i'd recommend you really take a look at take a look at our short answer videos where twice a month we take a, a question or a topic and myself or a colleague or a guest will give you a five to six minute answer to it they are brilliant for using with non-christian friends uh, and as i say i know lots of pastors who use them with youth groups start services with them or just nick the ideas in it and weave it into a sermon we don't care um and then lastly we've launched this year which ties in so beautifully with this theme because we're running a series this year called have you ever wondered where we take some of these big questions, beauty, meaning, truth, um, and ask, have you ever wondered? In fact, literally before jumping on this recording, I was writing the next one in the series, have you ever wondered why the why the great, why the, the most, why the best loved stories are all about good and evil? And they're just um, designed to be little pre-evangelistic conversation starters, again, for those in our lives who don't know Christ. Um, because often as Christians, we like to leap straight to, the, hey, let me give you five reasons why the resurrection happens. And the person you're talking to isn't ready to hear that. But if you can show, hey, Christianity were true it would explain all these things now maybe there's a bit of interest and then you can explain why exactly like Paul does in uh, in Acts 17 so have you ever wondered short answers so last website check it out and uh, and uh, and use it superb thank you so much and thank you for your generosity and making all of that available for free for people to use uh, I'm also excited because I believe you're going to be joining us at the New Day Youth Festival in the summer. Yeah, well. I'm, I'm hugely looking forward to it. I, did, I confess my ignorance. I didn't even know about that festival to you guys asked. I do a lot of festivals across the summer, but this is a new one. So, um, yeah, looking forward to, to, to there. So if I've said something uh, folks have enjoyed, they can come talk to me more. If I've said something totally outrageous and all the vegans want to come and throw avocados <laughs> at me, you will know where I am. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's one reason to come to the summer, if nothing else, to see avocados thrown at Andy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your time. God bless you. And we'll see you again soon.